0: Cognitive Load Theory and Its Applications for Learning Why is learning effortful? Why do we struggle to learn calculus, but easily learn our mother tongue? How can we make hard skills easier to learn? Cognitive Load Theory is a powerful framework from psychology for making sense of these questions. Developed in the 1980s by psychologist John Sweller, Cognitive Load Theory has since become a dominant paradigm for the design of teaching materials. In this essay, I'd like to explain the theory, some of its key predictions, and discuss some of the applications for your own learning. Why is learning hard? The central concept in cognitive load theory is that we have a limited mental bandwidth for dealing with new information, but no such limitations when dealing with previously mastered material. So consider the first time you saw an algebraic expression, for instance, 4 plus x equals 7. You might have been a bit confused by the x. The idea of moving statements around in an expression was also novel. Before that, you just had to calculate what was on the other side of the equal sign. However, notice what wasn't confusing. You already knew the numbers. You knew what the plus sign meant. These things probably didn't stand out at all since they were already understood. Now imagine how much harder it would be to understand algebra if you didn't already know these things. This also explains why we can struggle with hard classes. If we are missing patterns in memory, instruction may require juggling too many pieces of information simultaneously. These will slip out of memory and will fail to learn. Why are some subjects learned naturally? The working memory system is a form of conscious, deliberate, effortful learning. But not all learning is conscious. Psychologists have long marveled at children's ability to acquire perfect pronunciation in their first language or to recognize faces. People socialize into cultures without always being able to articulate those cultures' rules. Cognitive load theorists argue that we're evolutionarily predisposed to learn certain patterns of information. Some of these skills and subjects are acquired without effortful cognitive processing. Other skills, such as literacy or numeracy, have not been around long enough for us to evolve innate learning mechanisms. Instead, we learn these skills through a combination of relying on other innate learning mechanisms, for instance, letter recognition seems to co-op parts of the neocortex designed for recognizing faces, and also more general purpose learning mechanisms that involve conscious processing. What this suggests is that for some skills that are new to our evolutionary environment, there may be a necessary effortful form of learning required. Cognitive load theory separates out three different types of demands that learning puts on our limited working memory capacity. The first is intrinsic load. This is the load that's necessary to learn the pattern that will be put into long-term memory. It can't be gotten rid of. The second is extraneous load. This is unnecessary cognitive load that distracts from learning the pattern. Obvious distractions that eat up working memory, such as television in the background, Make learning harder. But extraneous load can also include mental work that's needed to learn a subject which isn't actually necessary. It's not the pattern that you're trying to learn. So, for instance, poorly organized studying materials can increase cognitive load by requiring students to flip between pages to make sense of a diagram or requiring students to figure out a pattern on their own which could have been taught explicitly. Third is germane load. This is load that's not necessary for learning the pattern, but which improves learning outcomes. Some forms of germane load include self-explanation, such as the Feynman technique, which add processing demands, but make more elaborative memory traces. Or retrieval practice, which is effortful, but increases the ability to recall a pattern later. This, by the way, is just testing yourself on the knowledge that you're trying to learn. So initially when I heard this theory, I found germane load confusing. So if the whole idea is that excessive cognitive load is bad, isn't the category of germane load just a sneaky way of saying, well, sometimes it isn't. However, I now feel I have a better grasp of the concept. Working memory has a fixed capacity. Sometimes the intrinsic load fills the entire available space, in which case any additional load will be harmful. However, if intrinsic load is not near a maximum, learning can be enhanced by having some of the spare capacity reinvested into activities that will deepen learning of that original pattern. Consider variable practice, one form of germane load. This is the idea of practicing a skill with an increased range of problems in a different context. It's harder than practice, which only occurs in a narrow range of problems. So one way to think about this is when you're doing a test where you know which section of the textbook the test questions came from. That's easier because it gives you a strong cue of which kinds of knowledge you need to use than problems that could come from anything. Now, there's evidence that this kind of variable practice where you don't know which section of the textbook the problems are coming from leads to better learning and transfer, although it also tends to be harder. However, the learning benefit of variable practice only occurs when cognitive load isn't overwhelmed. If it is, then simpler forms of practice become preferable. Key Experiments in Cognitive Load Theory Over the past few decades, cognitive load theory has amassed a lot of interesting experimental effects with catchy-sounding names. Here are a few. Number 1. The Worked Example Effect Traditionally, math education is focused on having students solve problems to get good at math. Sweller and Cooper pushed back against this idea, showing that studying worked examples, problems along with their detailed solutions, is often more efficient. Worked examples have since been shown to be powerful tools in many domains. The rationale is that problem solving is a cognitively demanding activity. This creates a lot of extraneous load that can make it harder to abstract the general solution procedure. This, of course, doesn't mean that practice isn't helpful. Instead, Sweller and Cooper argue in favor of presenting lots of examples first. Then practice should start with access to those examples so the pattern can be emulated. And finally, practice without the solutions available is helpful when the pattern is easy enough that retrieval efforts stimulate germane load. Number two, the goal-free effect. Problem solving is difficult because it requires you to keep in mind the goal you're trying to reach, how far you are from the goal, and all the potential operations you could use to move forward. This creates a lot of cognitive load that makes it harder to notice what the actual solution mechanism is. Worked examples are one way to reduce cognitive load since they spell out the pattern to be learned. Another is to give goal-free problems. This could be, for instance, like a trigonometry problem where the goal is to find as many angles or side lengths as possible, as opposed to the classic homework version where there is a particular value being sought. Research shows that early on, goal-free problems can result in greater learning consistent with cognitive load theory. Number three, the split attention effect. Cognitive load isn't just found in problem solving. Badly designed instructional materials can increase cognitive load by requiring learners to move their attention around to understand them. Consider two flashcards for learning Chinese characters. The first has the characters and the pronunciation side by side. There's two in each. And so you have to manipulate to draw over one to link the pronunciation to the character. A much better flashcard would be to have them on top of each other. So you just see each character with its pronunciation in just one glance. I mean, admittedly, this is a little bit difficult to describe over the podcast version. So be sure to check out the original article if you want to see what I'm talking about and you don't want your cognitive load overly taxed. Number four, the expertise reversal effect. Cognitive load theory predicts that for novices, exposed to information for the first time, worked examples are better than problem solving. But interestingly, this effect reverses as you gain more experience. One explanation for this is in terms of redundancy. If the solution pattern already is stored in long-term memory, making sense of a worked example doesn't really help you that much. In this case, it's simply better to retrieve the answer directly from memory without distracting yourself with the example. Another explanation is that if the problems are fairly easy to solve, then worked examples may not provoke deep enough processing. Actually solving a problem yourself is a kind of germane load akin to retrieval practice. Applying cognitive load theory to your studies. Cognitive load theory's principal applications are in instructional design. How should you teach a subject so that students will efficiently master the patterns of knowledge it contains? Cognitive load theory favors direct instruction, quick feedback, and plenty of practice. However, as students, we're often simply given instructional materials. What can we do to optimize cognitive load, given that the perfect explanations and studying resources aren't always given to us? Here are a few suggestions. 1. Study examples before solving problems. While some amount of figuring things out is often the only path available, this can make it harder to grasp the key concepts. There are a few tools you can apply as a learner to make this easier. One, look for examples online. So Khan Academy and many other websites offer detailed instructions for common problems in case your class is missing this full explanation. Two, look for problem sets with solutions. This was a big part of my MIT challenge. Copious problem sets with solutions lets you shift between studying the solution and practicing it yourself, and this tends to beat instructions that only talk about problem solving at a general level and omit much of the specifics of a worked example. It also allows you to shift to solving problems yourself once you've gotten a good grasp of the problem. Number three, self-explain your homework given feedback. So supposing you're in a traditional class where solutions are only provided long after the homework assignment has been handed in. What you need to do is spend additional time to fully explain the solution to yourself after you get it returned back to you. Self-explanations are a form of germane load that ensure that your homework feedback is actually put to good use. It's very easy to get the assignment handed back to you, but because you don't actually have to work on the problems anymore, to not really pay attention to it and not really learn the patterns that are important for your class. This applies to non-technical subjects as well. When I was learning to paint, I made heavy use of video tutorials where I worked on the same painting as the instructor. I'd usually watch the video through once and then work alongside the instructor on a second pass. 2. If a class confuses you, slow it down early. In my experience, the Feynman technique mainly works by slowing things down. In a lecture, a concept can be confusing because important assumptions or intervening steps are skipped, By walking through the explanation yourself, you can figure out exactly where you get lost. A difficult class is one where cognitive load is going to be near the maximum. Sometimes it will go too far and then you'll get lost. Catching these moments early and fixing them is a big part of staying on top of your studies. Since omitted knowledge is often reused in later parts of the class, a failure to understand something important in an early lecture can mean the rest of the class time is totally wasted. 3 build your prerequisite knowledge, and procedural fluency. Cognitive load theory is most important in domains where there is great element interactivity. This means that many different pieces all need to be in place to understand the problem. In contrast, a subject might have extensive difficulty where there's a large body of information to learn, but it's rarely encountered all at the same time. Math and science tend to be high element interactivity domains, This is also why mastery of these subjects is seen as being a sign of intelligence. Because working memory is highly correlated with intelligence, those who have slightly more working memory capacity can handle slightly greater element interactivity. While this creates a small advantage in the short term, if it allows the basic concepts to be learned more readily, this can accumulate into a large advantage in the long run. If you're falling behind in a subject that has high element interactivity, the key is to go back a step Invest in more practice in the underlying skills. Doing this work will make you more fluent in the component knowledge, which frees up more working memory for handling the new topics. My changing views on cognitive load. So I'll confess, I didn't fully appreciate cognitive load theory when I first encountered it. I tended to casually equate problem solving with practice. And since practice is essential with learning, I reasoned, well, problem solving must be equally important. Real life involves a lot of problem solving, so why shouldn't you practice it? There seem to be two good answers to my misconception. The first is that problem solving isn't really a skill. The way we get good at solving problems is by, first, having knowledge that assists in solving the problem, and B, having automatic procedural components that help in solving the problem. There are probably no domain-general problem-solving methods. Heuristics for solving problems within a domain might exist, but the significance of these is overwhelmed by the power of having tons of learned patterns in memory. This explains why transfer is hard and why expertise tends to be domain-specific. Two, practice is important, but it's more efficient when it's constrained. Practice allows you to do things more quickly and fluently. This is why it's important for complex skills with many interacting parts, but it is more efficient when you practice the best method and the best route from scratch, rather than being forced to figure out what the best method is. Worked examples, clear instructions, and background knowledge all help to put practice on the right tracks. When I was discussing these revelations to a friend, he asked how it might have changed my previous learning projects. I can think of a few places where I made some mistakes. First, during my portrait drawing challenge, I focused first on getting lots of practice with feedback. However, it was taking the class with Vitruvian Studios that ended up making the biggest difference a good method can save countless hours of practice. Second, cognitive load theory helps make sense of the optimal time to do immersion when learning a language. So for Vat and I, the uh, roughly 50 hours we spent on Spanish prior to Spain was more than enough to get going relatively smoothly. Yet even 100 hours in Chinese was still a bit of a grind for me at the start. For Korean, we ended up doing most of the preparatory work while we were in Seoul, which was a bit of a wasted opportunity. Uh, Look, I'm still a fan of immersion for language learning, but I think cognitive load theory helps explain how pivotal some of the design choices Vat and I made on the trip, and it also explains why some parts were more successful than others. For instance, Google Translate was a great way to alleviate cognitive load on demand in speaking situations that otherwise would have been above our level because you could quickly access words that you need as opposed to trying to make a sentence work figuring out what the right word is. Three, the cognitive load was too high in my quantum mechanics project. Part of this was simply the several year gap I had using calculus and differential equations. The components weren't as fresh and so I was always going back and relearning a little too much. But a bigger part was that I simply didn't have as many problem sets with solutions as I would have liked. If I had more, I could have done the first batch more like worked examples, rather than needing to use them sparingly. If I had to tackle something like this in the future, I'd probably do some warm-up practice to refresh the prerequisite skills and then I'd make sure I have tons of problem sets with solutions so I don't need to be stingy with them. All of this goes to show that even after 15 years of obsessing about this topic, I'm always working to refine my learning process. And as always, I'll continue to share what I find with you. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.